Okay. Good evening, everybody. Uh, I apologize for my unusual, even for me, degree of tardiness this evening. Uh, <clears throat> things got a little out of control here in the Olsen household this evening, but got everything under control here at last, and we're ready to start class. Um, and... Um, no, no, I did not. I, I, I've, I've heard all about the uh, the special appearance of Tolkien on uh, the uh, what the Legends of Tomorrow TV show this week. I've been hearing a lot of sort of chatter about that on Twitter over the last couple of weeks in the anticipation of it. I, I didn't see it because I've not watched the show. And if you know me, you know I am not even for something like that going to jump in in the middle of a show to watch a random episode of a of a series I haven't seen before. I may someday watch that whole show from the beginning. Uh you might talk me into that, but it's going to you're going to you can have a much harder time talking me into jumping in for a random episode like that. Um but anyway, you know, that that's, that's just kind of that's just kind of me, right? Um uh but good. I'm glad I'm glad you guys liked it. That's actually kind of encouraging. Uh, so yeah, I was wondering how that was gonna how, how that was gonna go. Uh, kind of reminds me of my trepidation about the uh, the Tolkien uh, biopic that is in the works, which I've been trying not to think about. Um, uh, so that was the one downside for me is that it reminded me of the Tolkien biopic, which I've been trying not to think about. Uh, but anyway, um, okay, uh, let's. Uh, Oh, wait, one quick announcement, of course, because i got something coming up uh, pretty soon. This weekend, uh, of course, the 25th, Saturday is the 25th of March, which is, of course, the Gondorian New Year. It's the day on which uh, uh, the ring was cast into the fire. Um, uh, that is, uh, uh, of course, Tolkien Reading Day. I, myself, am going to be celebrating Gondorian New Year uh, by holding a Lotro Marathon. I'm going to be uh, exploring the uh, the adapted story of Rohan as it is depicted in Lotro with my guardian character, Wigand. I'm going to be pushing through a big chunk of the epic quest line uh, that I've never seen before. Uh, so I'm going to be doing a marathon starting at noon Eastern time and going through... Well, let me say through at least 8 p.m. Eastern Time. That's the scheduled stop time, but I have a goal in mind. I want to get Wigand to the gate, to the doors of Meduseld. That's my goal. I want to get him to Meduseld, uh, and then we'll see if I can get further than that. Uh, when I mean, I don't think I can get further than that, but uh, you know, I'll pick up from there later on. But I do want to get him to the gates of Meduseld, so it's gonna be it's gonna be pretty cool. Um, anyway, so I'm really excited to see their adaptation of the Rohan story and to move Wigand along. And at that event, we're going to be doing also a fundraiser in support of our kids' camp for this summer, uh, for the Hobbit Immersion Camp that I have mentioned before. Uh, so uh, I hope you'll be able to, to, to join me for that. All right, so that is uh, this Saturday, starting at noon Eastern Time. All right, let us jump into the Return of the Shadow because I have a truly irresponsible number of slides I would like to try to get uh, through this evening. And the first thing I want to start off with is is the Odo controversy, right? I don't know how many of you were finding um, were finding the the whole Odo thing kind of bewildering. Um, but I want to I see if we can untangle that a little bit. Um, and the reason I want to do that is not because, like, the fate of the character of Odo is 
terrifically important, though it's kind of funny, uh, but it's not terrifically important. Um, but but nevertheless, I find it uh, to be really revealing, revealing of, uh, I think, a very important element of Tolkien's writing process. Um, it really gives us, I think, uh, a really fascinating illustration of one of the basic principles of, of Tolkien's revision process um, that I've been uh, I've pointed to already a couple times, but which I think is really just essential to understanding how Tolkien's mind works uh, as he goes, goes about writing and rewriting. And that, of course, is one of the fun things, right, about looking at this uh, book in the first place. So... Uh, let's, uh, we're, we're going to jump into the Odo thing. I've, I've called the class today clarifications and tidying because of course we're, we're, we're coming to the end of the second phase. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're in the conspiracy unmasked and, uh, um, so we did up through shortcut to mushrooms, you know, with the, uh, the sort of mad, violent farmer, you know, alternate universe farmer maggot last time, which was fun. Uh, and now we're going to be, we're, we're, so we're going into the Conspiracy Unmasked and the uh, the Old Forest rewrites up through or towards, anyway, the House of Tom Bombadil at the end of the second phase. And of course, we're going to come to the point where he stops and starts again. Right. And goes back. And as we'll see, what he's mostly doing is clarifying some things that were either uncertain or which he seems to have been uncomfortable with and tidying up some stuff that he had left kind of kind of messy uh, in the uh, in in the last time through. So let's we'll 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 see how all this goes. My crazy, reckless, ambitious goal for the evening tonight uh, is to get us all the way up to Bree, that is all the way through uh, the Barrow Downs in the second phase, so or the third phase, rather. The third phase, I mean. So yeah, this is, this is going to be awesome. Buckle up. Here we go. Uh, Karina, I'm not going to tell you how many slides, because I'm embarrassed to confess how many slides there are tonight. I don't want to set myself up for humiliation. Uh, okay, all right. So let's, so let's move forward. Uh, so the Odo controversy uh, is as... Other things have been Christopher's fault. That is, he confesses that it's his fault. Uh, from here, so this is a note by Tolkien, right? From here onwards, Odo is presumed to have gone with Mary ahead. The preliminary journey was Frodo, Bingo, and Sam only. Frodo has a char- has a character a little more like Odo once had. Odo is now rather silent and greedy. Against this, my father wrote, "Christopher wants Odo to be kept." Unhappily, I have now only a very shadowy recollection of those conversations of half a century ago, and it is not clear to me what the issue really was. I like how how Christopher Tolkien tries to exonerate himself from the whole Odo issue, right? Um, And this is, of course, the second time in as many chapters that Christopher Tolkien has confessed that one of the major sort of editorial decisions that his father was making in this early stage was to please him, right? So he, uh, he kept, or rather he he wrote that alternate Farmer Maggot story. Because remember, last time he wrote the entire, almost exactly the whole published Fellowship of the Ring version of the Farmer Maggot story. Um, uh, but then he wrote this secondary alternate version, you know, alongside it um, as an alternate, just purely as an alternate in order to please Christopher, because Christopher really liked the invisible bingo uh, playing jokes on Farmer Maggot element of the story, right? So he left that in to please Christopher. Uh, now he wants to ditch Odo, right? He's got, he had, uh, he, he, <laughs> remember, remember how the first version, uh, the first title of the, of the, of, of the, 
part where they depart from Bag End and go walking across the Shire. The first version of that chapter was Three's Company and Four's More. Well, apparently Tolkien has changed his mind about that. He's thought that Three's Company and Four's Less, right? Because he still wants to keep it to three. He's added Sam Gamgee, of course. Um, so you'll remember we had Bingo and Odo and Frodo took uh, in, in the first go-through, right, across the Shire. And now he's adding Sam Gamgee, so that, of course, now makes a crowd of four hobbits walking together across the Shire, and his 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 immediate instinct is to reduce it to Frodo, Bingo, and Sam only. Um, now, I think that, to me, well, I won't say the reason is perfectly obvious, because, again, I can't get into Tolkien's head, but... I will say it is consistent with what we see of his method that he does this. And what I mean is the the fundamental truth we are going to see in this revision process is that he does not want to ditch dialogue. He does not even want to write new dialogue, right? His goal when he is rewriting this is to rewrite it with as little violation, right? As as little violence done to the original draft as is possible. Um, it's a it's an extremely conservative approach to his revision, um, and of course that kind of an approach is much easier if he has the same number of characters involved to take the same situations and the same dialogue and spread it among four characters uh, instead of three is really challenging. And I suspect, given what we see, that that's why he wants to trim it to Frodo, Bingo, uh, Frodo took. Bingo and Sam only, but there's Christopher who just can't who just can't let Odo go, right? Uh, and uh, and so he he again does this sort of alternate thing where he's like, well, okay, and, and you'll notice how he still like his he, he really wants to to cut him, right? Such that he's actually you know he does the thing with the red ink, right? So the the things in red ink are if Odo, you know, like in the, you know, if I do have to keep Odo in, we'll do this. But he really writes it as if Odo's not there. But then he has the alternate version again, like the farmer maggot thing to please Christopher, right? But Christopher is like, I have no idea. I no, totally. I wasn't. It was. I mean, he says it was my idea. It was probably my idea. But I, you know, I, I, <laughs> I mean, I can. I, I, goodness knows, it's fifty years ago, right? And I don't remember what I did five days ago. So, uh, or did or said five days ago. Those of you who know me know well that this is true. So, goodness knows, I have every sympathy for his lack of recollection of the details of that. It just it comes off kind of funny, uh, you know, that like there's this there's this incredibly snarled textual situation which is his own fault, and he's like, I I don't know, I can't explain it, um, but. Um, yeah, I, I, <laughs> Bree says uh, she's surprised I'm not making a DS9 reference with the Odo character. Uh, you know, Brianna, I can't say I haven't been thinking about that constantly all the way through. I've been trying to restrain myself, and I'll carry on trying to restrain myself, because I know that not everybody uh, are Deep Space Nine fans. But of course, being in the very midst of DS9 right now, I'm, I'm uh, I think, episode eight now of season four. Um I, uh, I, yes, it's been very much on my mind all the way through. Um, okay, all right. So let's carry on trying to untangle the Odos, or rather to see what how Tolkien tried to juggle the Odos uh, as, we, as we moved for, forward. So let me sort of, again, show uh, Christopher discussing how Tolkien does his distribution of dialogue thing. 
Um, so, uh, okay, so this is again towards the, this is in the Conspiracy Unmasked chapter. The best explanation seems to be that when Odo was to be removed from the walking party and attached to Mary, that is, he was going to go on ahead with Mary and not walk with them, his name was to be changed also. Oh, yeah, this is because he, when he's talking about that Olo character with an, with an L, right, that shows up in Crickhollow. Some alterations were made to preserve the option of retaining the received story, right? That is like, you know, like the, that's the, let's please Christopher, you know, sort of codicil, right? Uh, But from the moment when they sat down to supper, Odo reappears in the text as first written, not merely as being present, which would only show that Olo had been rejected and Odo restored, that is, which would signify merely a a name change, right? Or rather a name restoration, but as having walked from Hobbiton though in this case his name was Bracketed, right? Again, we still have that, like, all right, all right, I'll keep him in walking from Hobbiton, but, like, I'm not 100% happy with this, right? But Frodo Took now makes Odo Pippin remarks as, oh, that was poetry about uh, leaving before the break of day. He would hardly have said such a thing previously. So, again, so, okay, Frodo Took has been given some of the Odo remarks. So Odo is still there, but Frodo Took is still being given some of the Odo remarks from before the things that Odo said in the original version. And one of the things that he's given is, is the example that he cites here is like, oh, that was poetry. Um, and when, it, when Christopher says he would hardly have said such a thing previously, he Frodo Took would hardly have said such a thing previously. Um, it shows the complexity of the situation, right? Uh, Frodo took, his character was quite different from Odo's. As you may recall from the first draft, Frodo took was a much more sort of contemplative figure. A lot of the the more sort of wondering and contemplative remarks that Sam makes in the published text were originally Frodo took's comments, right? Um, so recall again in the previous passage, uh, Frodo uh, has a character a little more like Odo once had, right? So we're gonna t- he's going to take some of Odo's lines and he's going to give them to Frodo, which means he's going to change Frodo Took's character, right, as he moves forward. And we see that even though Odo is being retained here, that's still being done. That is, the Odo lines are, are, are moving over uh, to Frodo Took. And, and, and what Christopher is pointing out here is that this, is a, this requires a shift to the character. Again, the thing that I would emphasize here... A lot of people, right, a lot of authors, I think, perhaps, let me say this a different way. I think that many authors might, when doing this kind of a revision, stick with characters rather than the text that they'd already written, right? So they have written a text and they've written dialogue, um, but they've invented characters, right? You've got Frodo Took and he has a particular character. You have Odo Took, who then changes to Odo um, uh, Bolger, right? Um, and Odo, Odo Bolger Took, and he uh, has another character, right? Quite a different character. So when we're going to remove Odo and replace Odo with Sam, you'd think, like, okay, he's got Sam as a particular character, Frodo Took has his character, right, which he's had from the beginning. So we need to rewrite the dialogue, right? Because we have a whole new dynamic with now Bingo and Sam and Frodo Took, right? Again, that, that is to say you would think that many authors would prioritize the integrity and the conception of the characters that they had rather than prioritizing the text and the dialogue that they had previously written. Not so Tolkien, 
In fact, it works almost exactly the other way around. He retains the old dialogue, um, even though that necessitates the complete change of the character, right? The Frodo took character essentially is gone. I mean, Sam gets some of his lines, but Sam's character is very different from Frodo took's character. Um, Again, they have some things in common because they have some lines in common, right? Um, but it's not, it's clearly not a question of like, I'm going to take that character, I'm going to continue that character. No, it, it's so, so this is not Tolkien kind of becoming familiar with the people in his story and thinking, what would these people say? Rather, he starts with the script and builds the character by mixing and matching chunks of the script that he already had. And that's to me, pretty striking, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty, <laughs> Nancy Fosberg says writing dialogue is hard. I totally agree. Uh, uh, sometimes Nancy, people ask me if I've ever tried writing, uh, uh, uh you know, uh, uh, you know, fiction myself. Uh, the answer is yes, quite a lot when I was much younger. Um, but it, it by the time I was in college, I, I realized that I sucked at writing dialogue. I just couldn't do it. Uh, so I, that's that's exactly why I gave up writing fiction myself. Absolutely. Um, but uh, but I think there's there's more to it than that. I mean, that is to say, it seems to me that his whole attitude, his whole philosophy of how he's approaching this text, in a sense. Philosophy might not be quite the right word, but um, his whole approach is just... is a very strikingly unusual one, certainly very different from any process I've really heard uh, and, and other authors having. However, you know what it is kind of like? It is kind of like a textual scholar, right, who is used to sort of taking fragments of text that they have and seeing how they can piece it together and try to understand how it fits into a whole, right? Where you don't have the freedom to just change what's there. So it's like he's he's treating his own rough draftings almost as if they were a received text that you must somehow make sense of rather than just going back and changing them. I mean, it's not that he doesn't ever make any changes and goodness knows he makes lots of refinements to expression and stuff as we go along. But again, that the fundamental relationship that he seems to have, um, with uh, with the, the 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 his own text, it just strikes me so much more as the relationship of a textual scholar rather than the relationship of uh, of of a writer in a sense. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Yana says, uh, Tolkien put a lot of work into discovering these lines, as he might call it. It's understandable that uh, that he would want to retain it. And Yana, I, I agree, that's another way to think about it, right? I mean, we, we, we do, you know, we've I've talked before in lots of other contexts about how Tolkien seems to be sort of discovering the story rather than... Uh, uh, rather than than just composing it, right? And so perhaps that is a reflection of that same sort of attitude. It's like he doesn't have the right to <laughs> to change it, right? And it's it didn't exactly, you know, he this is what he found, so he's got to he's got to work with it, right? Maybe, um, but uh, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, 
Moving on. The Bath Song, the Bath Song, here sung by Frodo in his new Odo-esque character, is all but identical to that which Pippin sings in The Fellowship of the Ring. But in a red ink addition to the text, one of the optional additions made to bring Odo back in his original role, specimens of the competing songs sung by Bingo and Odo are given. And he goes on to explain. You'll remember the other Bath Song? Um, remember when we were talking about the Hobbit's bath longing, right? When we were looking at the first draft of this? Um, and those passages which are, which are, which are, they're about baths, but they're very unlike the bath song that that ultimately Pippin sings in the Fellowship of the Ring. So uh, Frodo took, sings Pippin's ultimate song here, right? But the old versions, which are quite different, are give are still given, but they're given to Bingo and Odo, right? So again, even 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 the old songs uh, don't uh, don't immediately die. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, and so. Let me jump ahead for a little bit. Um, that is, I'm 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 jumping ahead to two different passages from Christopher Tolkien's discussion of the third phase, um, which is a little bit out of order. But I wanted to do this because there, uh, Christopher goes through much more clearly the sort of the Odo situation and articulates more and gives some more illustrations of these kind of principles that I've been that I've been talking about. So I thought it was worth looking at. In the earlier versions of this chapter, that is cha- what, you know, chapter three, the Three's Company chapter, um, the young hobbits Frodo and Odo had distinct characters. The removal of Odo from the expedition does not mean, however, that Odo's character was removed, because my father always worked on the basis of preceding drafts, and a great deal of the original material of this chapter survived. Yeah, a very great deal. Though Frodo took, now renamed Folko took, since Bingo had become Frodo, finally, hooray, Frodo Baggins is finally there, anyway, was the one who remained in the new narrative. He had to become the speaker of the things that the absent Odo had said, unless my father was to rewrite what he had written in a far more drastic way than he wished to. And I love, by the way, I love the two places in this passage where Christopher acts as if his father's approach to revision is just the most natural thing in the world, right? Which doubtless to Christopher it is, right? Because that's what he's lived with, and he's kind of lived inside this text and editing this text for so long that doubtless this seems perfectly normal. I don't think it is perfectly normal, but maybe it is. Maybe I'm wrong, but uh, I don't think so. And again, like, so he, he, you know, he says, my father always worked on the basis of preceding drafts. Well, yeah, but that doesn't mean you have to keep every line word for word or almost word for word and just shuffle the characters about, right? That, that doesn't necessarily... You can work from a previous text without without doing that. And similarly, that whole... Um, uh, uh, unless my father was to rewrite what he had written in a far more drastic way than he wished to. It's like, well, yeah, like rewriting it in a far more drastic way, actually kind of, you can make an argument that it's kind of called for here, actually, right? Or at least perfectly justifiable, but again, the very understated, you know, his father did not wish to rewrite it drastically. No, no, he didn't wish to, right? Nor did he usually wish to. That's just the way he did things. Anyway, sorry, I'm interrupting myself and uh, in, in, okay, let me back up a little bit. Though Frodo took, now renamed Falco took, since Bingo had become Frodo, was the one who remained in the new narrative, he had to become the speaker of the things that the absent Odo had said. Despite the early note, Sam Gamgee to replace Odo, Sam was too particularly conceived from the outset to be at all suitable to take up Odo's nonchalance. Moreover, in this version of the chapter, the original contribution of Falco, Frodo, took, was in any case further reduced. 
The verse, the road goes ever on and on, had already been given to Bingo in the second version, remember Frodo said it originally. Now his account of meeting a black rider up on the North Moors was dropped, and his exclamation of delight when the singing elves was heard, Elves! How wonderful! I have always wished to hear elves singing under the stars! was cut out, apparently in the act of writing, and replaced by Sam's hoarse whisper, Elves! So Falco took, with a diminished part of his own, and acquiring much of Odo's, becomes Odo more completely than my father apparently foresaw when he said Frodo took has a character a little more like Odo once had. Okay, so again, this, it, this is all really kind of complicated. Now, by the way, um, it's true, Sam Gamgee is to replace Odo, and he, and he does in a sense, of course, um, but only really when you're counting noses, not when you're really looking at the dialogue. Um, Christopher uh, uh, ascribes that, that is the, the lack of one-for-one substitution between Sam and Odo, uh, to Sam's character, right? That Sam isn't the kind of person who would say the kind of things that Odo would say. I would also point out that he's also not the kind of person who would say them in the way that Odo says them, right? So, I mean, it's neither fitting with his... um, Odo's... uh, Odo's... uh, uh, um, lines don't fit Sam, either in a character sense, or, you know, nor do they fit Sam's idiom, right? Either both linguistically and in the... Monty Python, Sir Lancelot sense, right? It's just not how Sam talks, it's not how Sam thinks. Um, and so there are very few of Odo's lines in the end that really can be just given uh, to Sam. Um, in this new version of the chapter, there is only to notice the curious result of the exclusion of Odo Bulger. Oh, so by the way, this is at the beginning of the... Uh, Conspiracy on mass ch- uh, No, no. This is in the shortcut to mushrooms uh, when they're debating whether or not to leave the road and go across country uh, through the Marish or whether to stay on the road. Right. In this new version of the chapter, there is only to notice the curious result of the exclusion of Odo Bulger, with Falco Took adding Odo's part to that which he retained from Frodo Took's in the former narrative. Uh, this is a fun case study, right? Of what are some of the problems that happen when you take the things that these two characters said and you keep them almost exactly the same and you put them together into one character, right? So you take Odo and Frodo stuff and you give it to Falco Took. What happens? In the previous version, Odo argued against taking a shortcut to the ferry, because while he did not know the country, he did know the golden perch at stock, and Frodo took argued for it, because he did know the country. Now, the Frodo element in Falco, retaining a knowledge of the country, uses it to support the desire of the Odo element in him for the beer at stock, and his opponent in the argument is Frodo Baggins, thus Falco is here and throughout the chapter Pippin in all but name. That, of course, is the amazing outcome of all this thing. And right, so this is great. So you know, Frodo took knew the country, and therefore, and therefore said uh, uh, that we you should they should go across country. Don't worry, because I know the land. Right. Whereas Odo was saying, I don't know this country. Let's stick to the road. And anyway, I hear the golden perch is awesome. Right. Whereas Falco took in the revision, who is going to become Pippin, says, I know the country around here. Right. And therefore, we shouldn't go across country. We should go by the road and go to the golden perch. Right. Um, the point is, this is, um, uh, the really amazing result of all this. I mean, I've been, I've been saying things which might, I mean, I don't really mean it critically. I'm only kind of pointing out Tolkien's, what I find to be Tolkien's idiosyncrasies, which I think are fun idiosyncrasies, but they're a little bit odd, right? Um, 
But the thing that I think we really have to notice here is how good Tolkien is at this, right? The result of this weird kind of conglomeration of Odo and Frodo, who were two quite different characters, right? I mean, even here in this instance, the two of them were on opposite sides of the of the thing, and he doesn't just drop one side and keep the other. He keeps the arguments that both of them make on, on different sides of the question and combines them to make them both arguments for one side of the question, right? I mean, it's it's you know, there's a way in which this is just, it's like a... a, a almost hard to kind of wrap your mind around doing things this way, right? But what is the result? The result is Pippin's character, right? Um, as he says, Falco took, becomes, his name hasn't been shifted to Pippin yet, but now now we have a, a, a straight up Pippin substitution, right? The character of Pippin has really finally emerged. So the result, uh, you know, by kind of abandoning character and sticking with the dialogue and then stitching the dialogue together and and sometimes kind of twisting it around in context to make it fit uh, into the mouth of one person, the result is not this kind of bizarre, stilted, conflicted, uneven, you know, Frankenstein of a character. The result is Pippin Took, right? Uh, it, that is to say, it works, and it works really well. So, you know, it's a, it's a strange... Um, it's a it's a it, it's an odd approach, but Tolkien is really really effective in the way that he does these revisions and the way that he is able to hold uh, uh, to hold these things together and to form it and, and to form it into in the end uh, a character which I think everybody uh, would uh, agree. Um, you know, Pippin Took is a really attractive character. I mean, I've, 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 I've almost never met anybody who didn't like Pippin's character, right? Um, and uh, and finds it a very charming, very, very distinctive character. Um, and the idea that he emerged as this kind of like Frankenstein <laughs> construction, right? Uh, uh, Odo and uh, Odo uh, Bulger and Frodo Took kind of combined in a, you know, in um, in a mixing bowl, right? Uh, is just really a testimony uh, to how good at Tolkien was at taking these elements and bringing them together and making what looks to be a seamless whole out of it. I think it's absolutely just fascinating to see um, how he constructs this. So, okay, let's uh, let's go back now. So that, that was our, our, our little peek ahead um, to the um, to the to the to the third phase. We'll come back to the third phase in due course. Um, but we'll. I wanna. I wanna. I wanna finish out the second phase in a more orderly fashion before we, before we get there. Um, yeah, Tony says it's also amazing he's doing this revision and keeping it all straight while working on handwritten paper in days before word processing software. Absolutely, Tony. And this is why we get all those. And remember, this is going to become very relevant very soon. Right, the second phase text. You know, in many of the places, as Christopher keeps pointing out, he's he's writing over top of and around and, and adding insertions to the original manuscript. Right? You'll get three or four layers of the text all in one place. So the idea that, you know, at times he makes mistakes or forgets to correct things or, you know, has like different versions of things going on and kind of staying in the in, in the main text that kind of takes him a while to iron out. That is the opposite of surprising under the circumstances. It, it, it certainly is... Um, Amazing that he was able to keep all this stuff as 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 close to straight as he was. Anyways, back to back to phase two. Um, so this is back to the conspiracy unmasked chapter, uh, and now Odo 
this is Tolkien will now attempt again to leave Odo behind, <laughs> right? This is and Tolkien in his continuous attempt to jettison Odo. Odo was not convinced and plainly far less frightened of meeting a troop of riders on the open road than of venturing into the dubious forest. Even Frodo was against the plan. I hate the idea, said Odo. I would rather risk pursuers on the road, where there is a chance of meeting ordinary honest travelers as well. I don't like woods, and the stories about the old forest have always terrified me. I am sure black riders will be very much more at home in that gloomy place than we shall. Even Frodo on this occasion sided with Odo. <laughs> it's, it's like... But this isn't Pippin agreeing with himself, because now Odo is going to be is, is in the role that's going to be taken up by Fatty Bulger, right, eventually. But Okay, so we're in Crick Hollow with our five hobbits, right? And we're going we're gonna to ditch Odo again. Um, and Karita, you're right. This is, a, it, it, this is much stronger opposition. Um, and it's interesting to me that, he, that this, this disagreement emerges spontaneously. That is to say, the plan, their plan, the Hobbit's plan, had been for all five of them to go, right? The idea that Odo balks at the old forest plan and decides instead to stay behind is, and I'm not saying for Tolkien, but for the Hobbits themselves, a spontaneous thing. You'll remember, of course, in the published Fellowship of the Ring, Fatty Bulger, the plan from the beginning is for, fat, is for Fatty to stay behind, right? Um, that he, you know, he has, according to the conspiracy, the plans that they have already made, um, his job is to stay behind in the Shire. That is not true of Odo. Here, Odo's, the plan was for him to come with him, but he chooses uh, to stay behind. And Karita, I agree. The, his idea that the writers will be more at home in the gloom is interesting and insightful in a way. Also, Karita, it seems to me to still kind of retain the memories of the first version when Tolkien was still trying to figure out what the Black Riders were. And there was that... Because remember, we have reached the point in the previous draft where the Black Riders were ringwraiths, right? Where the, the two things were identified with each other. Um, so, yeah, Karita, I, he's clearly changed his mind about that, right? They're, they're, they're not the same thing as Barrow Whites anymore. But the idea that they would be, in some sense, at home in the old forest, in the Barrow Downs, still lingers, right? Um, and as you say, Karita, I totally agree. It makes a lot of sense. Odo makes a very... This is not just a, I'm too scared to go into the old forest. I think there are goblins and bogies in there, right? That's not... It, that's clearly not the situation at all. This is actually uh, a very strongly worded, um, but but I, rather convincing argument. A note on the manuscript earlier says, penciling equals Odo stays behind. <laughs> Once again, Odo is a crux in the text, right? Odo, we're, we're now having alternate versions, the Odo comes and the Odo stays behind version uh, of phase two. Again, Odo is just a continuous problem. These pencilings are in fact confined to the section just given. Even Frodo on this occasion sided with Odo is bracketed and replaced by further words of Odo's, and I feel certain it is wrong not to wait for Gandalf. And after, we follow Captain Bingo, they said at once, is inserted. I will follow Captain Bingo, said Merry and Frodo and Sam. Odo was silent. Look here, he said after a pause. I don't mind admitting I am frightened of the forest, but I also think you ought to try and get in touch with Gandalf. I will stay behind here and keep off inquisitive folk. When Gandalf comes, as he is sure to, I will tell him what you have done, and I will come on after you with him, if he will bring me. Merry and Frodo agreed that that was a good plan. Okay, um, so 
uh, so again, now this version in which now has Odo staying behind, um, uh, this is created, this is another good argument, right? We have uh, Odo continuing his forthright, strongly worded, but quite intelligent and reasonable um, uh, argument, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sarah Lagarde says, looking back, it's kind of surprising uh, that the Black Riders, especially the Witch King, weren't featured in the Barrow Downs episode in the final version. And Sarah, I assume when you say especially the Witch King, you're thinking of the fact that it's, it, according to the appendix, it's the Witch King himself who sends the dark spirits into the Barrows. Um, so that is, the Barrow Whites were his idea. Like, they're his henchmen. Right? He sent them. It's his fault that the barrows are haunted in the first place. He sent the spirits that haunted them. Um, so, yeah, you'd think he'd have some pull there. Uh, and, of course, Sarah, you know, an interesting thing. Um, we get a scene with the Witch King in the Barrow Downs in the Lord of the Rings Online, right? In the video game, they actually they actually take that um, and for that exact reason. Uh, because the spirits of the Barrow Downs actually have allegiance uh, to the Witch King of Angmar, and especially with the whole Angmar focus of the first half of the Lotro plot, they actually bring that out, which I think is which I think is interesting, and it makes it makes a lot of sense. Um, so yes, I agree that Sarah, in retrospect, it becomes kind of conspicuous, kind of interesting um, that the Black Riders don't ever interact with the Barrows and the Barrow Whites. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Karita is wondering. Why Captain? That is, why, why does he call himself Captain Bingo? Um, he says, Hobbits aren't sailors, and they're not much of a military power, right? The, the idea of using that word Captain is... I mean, I, I think it's just an expression. Cap, I mean, you're right that it's derived from some kind of military rank, right? Whether it's, whether it's army rank or navy rank, it's, it's, uh, 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 it's certainly military in, in, in origin. I mean, unless it's just purely nautical, right, as in captain of, of the ship. It doesn't seem that they're using it really very literally. That is, this doesn't sound like something that has a full backstory behind it. I bet if Tolkien kept it, he would have done, right? He would have been able to come up with an explanation for why they used the phrase, you know, the, 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 the word captain in this context. But in the end, he just cuts it instead, right? So we don't... Um, we don't, we don't, we don't get the same thing in the same way. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, actually, no, we do get Captain, but it's not him who says it. Three cheers for Captain Frodo and company. It is in the Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah, um, yeah. Tony, the ca- captain is the leader of a company. You're right, um, but uh, but it is an interestingly military expression. Um, yeah. Not sure. Not sure about that. It, it, it is a really interesting point. Um, yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> James, James Oakley says, must have been the lead bingo bear in the Tolkien children's violent exp- play, play sessions, right, with the, with the demonic bear who uses high explosives, right? Yeah, yeah, doubtless. Doubtless, that's certainly where it must have come from. Um... Okay, so Odo makes an interesting alternative plan. So here the idea, so now the idea of Odo deliberately staying behind in order to meet up with Gandalf. So notice we're still expecting Gandalf. And notice also that Odo is not just saying, "Hey, I've got a shrewd plan," right? Um, uh, I think you ought to try and get in touch 
with Gandalf. When Gandalf comes, as he is sure to, I will tell him what you have done. Right? Um, Odo believes that connecting with Gandalf is going to be really important and really necessary. And, of course, he turns out to be exactly correct about that in the immediately coming version of the story. Um, This, of course, shows us something about something we didn't know um, earlier in the second phase. Gandalf goes away. We're not really sure where he goes, and we're not really sure why he hasn't come back in time for the party, right? Um, But it's clear that the hobbits still expect him to arrive, and it seems that Tolkien, in fact, still expects him to arrive. The idea of this sort of extended and wholly inexplicable absence of Gandalf doesn't seem to be really in the picture. He's He's only a little bit late, right? Um... Okay. Um, Still in the conspiracy scene, I wanted to look at the song that they sing, right? Uh, The imitation of the uh, uh, Far Over the Misty Mountains Cold song that they sing is similar to, but significantly different from the one that's in the published Fellowship of the Ring. Um, And I found this version of the song really interesting. Farewell, farewell, now hearth and hall. The wind may blow and rain may fall. We must away ere break of day, far over wood and mountain tall. The hunt is up across the land. The shadow stretches forth its hand. We must away ere break of day to where the towers of darkness stand. With foes behind and foes ahead, beneath the sky shall be our bed, until at last the ring is cast in fire beneath the mountain red. We must away, we must away, we ride before the break of day. Okay, Uh, first of all, the conspiracy is exceptionally well informed, right? Um, Remarkably so, as they're singing this together... After they've arrived in Crick Hollow, when Frodo and when when uh, sorry, when Mary last saw the other hobbits, right, they had no idea that the Black Riders were a thing, right? Much less that they were hard, much less that uh, the foes were behind them or that the hunt was up, right? They didn't know that at all. Um, and they certainly didn't know that the shadow had begun to stretch forth its hand across their particular land yet, right? Um, and so the stretching forth of the hand of the shadow, uh, uh, that is, the point I'm trying to make is that the, the, the song as it's currently done here seems a little bit premature. Brandon, I think it is the enemy's hunt. That's how I understand it, right? Because I don't think it's theirs, Um and and the transition, right? The hunt is up. Across the land, the shadow stretches forth its hand. That seems to be like it's explaining the hunt, right? So it's the, the shadows hunt for the ring. Because certainly they're not hunting anything. Uh, so it's got to be the 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 shadow, you know, the, the enemy hunting for them. Um, but yeah, that idea of like the hunt is up suggests that when this song was composed in advance, they already knew that. Right? They already knew that the Black Riders were coming, or they already knew that the uh, the enemy was 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 closing in, um, which, of course, they couldn't have known. Um, And would they even think of the Towers of Darkness as the destination that they're headed to? We must away our break of day to where the Towers of Darkness stand? Really? Straight to Mordor? Is that where you guys think you're going? Um, And uh, when are you going to stop your journey? You're going to keep going until at last the ring is cast in fire beneath the mountain red? Really? Wow. 
Okay, this is uh, not only a well-organized, but a highly ambitious conspiracy. Right, Frodo and Gandalf were... St- or, sorry, excuse me, still bingo. We're in the second phase. Um, we're almost done. I can almost stop calling him bingo forever. Um, bingo and Gandalf were still hedging about that, right? Yeah, maybe you'll be headed to Mount Doom. Maybe not. You know, maybe you're going to go to the Fiery Mountain. Maybe not. Um yeah, uh, James, it is interesting also that the Towers of Darkness are plural, right? There's more than one. T- maybe maybe that, James, reflects their ignorance, right? The, like, they don't really know, uh, which, um, you know, what, what ex- you know, what the, the, they think there are multiple towers. There aren't multiple towers. Maybe there are all m- multiple towers. I don't even know. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Several of you are very ready to see Bingo go away too. I understand. Um, yeah, yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, Tony says the, the, they're assuming that the quest is to go all the way to to, to Mount to Mount Doom. Well, 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 Bingo still really thinks he's only going to Rivendell, and Gandalf even you know suggests that he may in fact really only uh, you know maybe it would be best if if you know he he might go no further than than Rivendell. So um, anyway, they. They've got it all. <laughs> they've got it all mapped out, right? Um, Tom Hillman does think it's it's very hobbity, right? To to sort of sing cheerfully like this about throwing the ring into the fire. Um, Tom, what I really love about that is that it takes the central place in the verse. Obviously, the center of this song is the repeated line, right? We must away our break of day, emphasized not only because it's repeated in all, uh, you know, in, in 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 all the stanzas, but because of the internal rhyme, right? The internal rhyme puts more stress on it; it, it makes it jump out more, right? Um, so we must away our break of day. We must away our break of day. But then the the, the business about the casting of the ring takes that role. Right until at last the ring is cast in fire beneath the mountain red, and then we return to we must away, we must away, we ride before the break of day. Um, so yeah, so that's the that uh, it becomes the it's it's clearly they they obviously in this song the, the the singer of this song clearly sees that as the core of the whole thing, right? It's the culmination. We must away, we must away. That's the beginning. What's the end? Right, casting the ring into the you know until at last the ring is cast. Um, so yeah, the, the, the way that that sort of frames the action of their quest as it sort of frames the poem, uh, in that way. Yeah. But it is, it is kind of fun, right? That there, that it seems in that way a little bit, um, a little bit neat. I won't say flippant because that's not exactly right, but, um, but it is hobbity, Tom, right? To, to sort of sing relatively lightly. They, they make it, they make it sound kind of easy, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, good. Um. <laughs> okay, so Arthur Tom says he's suggesting until we cast the ring, oive, which would rhyme then with the break of day. There, right? Yeah, I would. That, that would though it lacks the internal rhyme, Tom. You got you got to have the first rhyme there too, right? Um, uh, I'm not sure. We'd have to so we'd have to replace cast with another verb that 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 rhymes there. I'm not sure there. Um, uh, yeah, see, Tomas is asking, how come Gildor didn't sing a version of the Tralalalali song about the ring? Um, uh, what Tomas, he totally would have, 
right? Uh, I, I mean, again, I've said all along, I'm totally convinced that Gilder was present among the Tralalalali elves in The Hobbit. Um, but again, that's the point. He doesn't do this, right? He doesn't, he, he, he breaks out of Tralalalali mode when he's talking to Bingo, right, about the ring. Um, whereas, yeah, the, conspir- the conspiratorial hobbits don't break out of hobbitry mode, right? Even when they're uh, uh, cheerfully singing their song about with foes behind and foes ahead. I mean, look how, listen, the, how cheerful that, that stanza sounds despite how absolutely grim the content is, right? With foes behind and foes ahead, beneath the sky shall be our bed until at last the ring is cast in fire beneath the mountain red. Um, the The central action, right? We've got of that stanza with foes behind and foes ahead, like under these circumstances, we will sleep beneath the sky, right? Beneath the sky will be our bed until at last the ring is cast in fire beneath the mountain red. That is the, the primary subject, the action of that stanza is sleeping, right? Where shall we sleep? We shall sleep beneath the sky. Which just shows you, right? I mean, that's going to alarm foxes everywhere that they're going to be sleeping beneath the sky, right? But that's that's the hobbity expression of we're going to go into exile. We'll be sleeping beneath the sky, right? Um, under what circumstances? Oh, you know, with enemies in front of us and enemies behind us and everybody hunting us down. But that's not what we're going to focus on, right? And uh, and the casting of the ring into the into the into the fiery mountain is put forward merely as the terminus of the period of time during which they're going to sleep underneath the sky, right? Um, you know, so, but, but really the whole point is, like, we're going to be camping out, right? I mean, it's, it is, a, Tom, I agree, an extremely hobbity song. Um, I'm not saying I don't like it. Um, I mean, I, 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 I think I can see why Tolkien changed it, because, again, it doesn't exactly, it doesn't exactly work, uh, uh, plot-wise, because again, how would they even have known all this stuff in time to have composed the song? But, uh, um, but anyway, it's, it's, uh, it's still delightful. Um, yeah, Tony says it almost sounds like they're going to go th- throw the ring into the fire and then sleep in a bed that night. Yeah, yeah. I mean, perhaps that is something that they have uh, that they have in mind. As Karita says, you can take the hobbits out of the Shire, but not the Shire out of the hobbits. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and Arthur, you're absolutely right. I mean, I haven't even been talking about um, the. I mean, of course, as we can see, the obvious parallel with uh, uh, with the you know the, the 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 far over the misty mountains cold song with the dwarf song originally. But of course, Arthur is pointing out that in this in this first version of it, the parallel is tighter. Right? That is explicitly Bilbo went to extract treasure from underneath a mountain, and they're going to 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 toss the ring uh, beneath. Right. Uh, the, the, it's the it's the the preposition beneath there that's so conspicuous. Right, Arthur, they're going to they're going to throw it. They're going to they're going to throw it this under another mountain. Right. So they they pull the one treasure out. And they're going to throw the other treasure in um, the way that they make this almost exactly uh, uh, reflect. Right. Uh, you know, mirror the dwarf song in that way is really uh, uh, is really neat. It's really fun. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
it's it is it is kind of amazing that so I and, and there are ways in which I'm sorry that we lost this version of the poem um, because I really like that I mean even like the hunt is up um, how cheerful is that sound right I mean this does not sound at all like we're about to be horribly killed or drawn inextricably into the wraith world by the like horrifying uh, quasi undead servants of the Dark Lord but. Um, you know, the hunt is up. Across the land, the shadow stretches forth its hand. We must away our break of day to where the towers of darkness stand. Okay, so the hunt is up, right? The shadow is stretching forth across the land. So what do we need to do? We're going to go to the towers of darkness, right? There's this sort of cheerful defiance to that stanza. We must away our break of day right into the heart of the darkness. That's exactly where we're going, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Anyway, so um, uh, it's oh, Arthur is complaining that only Mary and Bingo had read the book and knew that song. Well, Arthur, I suspect Bilbo had sung that song way more than once before. I mean, we know that Bilbo likes to tell. It's true that his his memoir, his written memoirs, have only ever been shown to Bingo, and we know that Mary's caught a glimpse of it. But um, but there's no reason to think that he hasn't retold many of the stories and sung the songs before. So I'm sure they're familiar with the song uh, just from Bilbo singing it with them or telling it to them. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. Um, moving ahead. Uh, just a, uh, a cup one... Just one, actually. One point I want to hit on in the, in the Old Forest, which I thought was interesting. Um... Here we go. Sorry. The parts played in the Willow Man episode are changed by the presence of Sam Gamgee in the party. Bingo and Odo are still the two who are caught in the cracks of the tree, and Frodo Took is still the one pushed in the river. But whereas in the original story it was Marmaduke, i.e. Mary, who rounded up the ponies and rescued Frodo Took from the water, Sam now takes over this part, as in the Fellowship of the Ring, while Mary lay like a log. Right. Okay. So Mary isn't in the tree yet, but he's now comatose. Um, and I just, I was, I loved the fact that Sam, you know, one, one of the first changes, you know, sort of shufflings that he's making here in this section of the story to accommodate the new character of Sam, who's never been here before, uh, is to put him in the, in the not exactly heroic role because he doesn't succeed in saving everybody. Right. But he is the last holdout against old man Willow. Um, Mary, even back when he was named Marmaduke, has always been a competent character, right? That is, you know, he's a, a very capable person. Um, you know, the kind of guy that you would give all your possessions to and have him drive them across country and then set up your new house for you, right? Um, uh, and remember, in the first version, Mary was the one who was really his primary confidant and closest friend. And in fact, you'll recall that uh, Tolkien had originally suggested that Mary was the only one who went with Bingo, right? When Bingo leaves the Shire, just the two of them, Mary and Bingo, were going to go off together. Um, so the idea that, it, of course, in the original version, that Marmaduke, and that, as I recall, was the last act of Marmaduke Brandybuck before his name was changed to Mariotic forever. Um, anyway, uh Marmaduke was sort of managing, trying to manage things, right, at uh, Old Man Willow. Well, instead of the competent friend Mary, competent, reliable friend Mary managing things at the Old Willow, Sam now gets that role. Um, and therefore it sort of it shifts about, 
right? That is, the significance of that role shifts about uh, Sam is not sort of suavely competent, um, but rather uh, 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 stalwart and unflappable and trying to solve it. One of, my f- uh, one of my favorite lines in The Fellowship of the Ring was always, I'll have that tree down if I have to gnaw it. <laughs> I just absolutely love that line. Um, surely not something Marmaduke Brandybuck would ever have said. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, <laughs> Tom says, with a name like Marmaduke, you'd better be competent. <laughs> Interesting that Sam, the one most interested in fairy, is the most resistant to Old Man Willow's spell. Yeah, it is. It, it is interesting there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, Matt Hersenrutter says, uh, as a big fan of Mary, I, 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 I would like to read the version where it's Frodo and Mary at the Cracks of Doom. I don't know, man. I don't know if Frodo gets there with Mary. I really don't. I mean, could Mary do what Sam does? I don't know. I mean, it would, you know, it would happen, but it would be so different. It's hard to imagine what it would be like, isn't it? Um, (laughs) yes. And James Stevens likes the fact that Frodo stays in the river, even though he's changed from Took to Baggins. Yeah, exactly. The, uh, it's the, it's the, it's the first name that gets you submerged apparently in this scene. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, the culminating scene of the second phase of the manuscript. Uh, Crick Hollow. Suddenly there was a movement. It was dark, and hardly a star was shining, but the blade that was drawn gleamed suddenly, as if it brought with it a chill light, keen and menacing. There was a blow, soft but heavy, and the door shuddered. "'Open to the servants of the Lord,' said a voice, thin, cold, and clear. At a second blow the door yielded and fell back, its lock broken." At that moment there rang out behind the house a horn. It rent the night like fire on a hilltop. Loud and brazen it shouted, echoing over field and hill, Awake! Awake! Fear! Fire! Foe! Awake! Now, if you just had this, you'd think you knew right where you were, right? Which sounds just like what happens in the Fellowship of the Ring. Not so what happens next, right? Round the corner of the house came the gray man. His cloak and hat were cast aside. His beard streamed wide. In one hand was a horn, in the other a wand. A splendor of light flashed out before him. There was a wail and cry as of fell hunting beasts that are smitten suddenly and turned to fly in wrath and anguish. In the lane the sound of hoofs broke out, and gathering rapidly to a gallop, raced madly into the darkness. Far away answering horns were heard. Distant sounds of waking and alarm rose up. Along the roads folk were riding and running northward. But before them all there galloped a white horse. On it sat an old man with long silver hair and flowing beard. His horn sounded over hill and dale. In his hand his wand flared and flickered like a sheaf of lightning. Gandalf was riding to the north gate with the speed of thunder. Um... Yeah, this, uh, Nancy, I agree. This is an awesome scene, isn't it? I absolutely, I mean, Gandalf was riding to the North Gate with the speed of thunder, right? What a wonderful scene this is. Um, I love the sheaf of lightning. Uh, I love the the wail and cry as of fell hunting beasts that are smitten suddenly and turn to fly in wrath and anguish. The, 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 Black riders just scattering and scuttling away to their horses, right? When Gandalf comes around the corner, his beard streaming and light flashing. The, a splendor of light flashing out before him. This is absolutely uh, fantastic. Um, 
and yeah, that the the horn call comes and it's Gandalf with the horn, right? So we not only have Gandalf himself personally coming to oppose, and this is, I agree, uh, 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 this is Gandalf the Grey Uncloaked, right? So we get Gandalf the Grey Uncloaked coming around the corner, and he doesn't just take him on, right? He starts off by ringing the horn and, and rallying all the... Ho- so seeing as if, like, sort of inspired into courage uh, uh, and even recklessness by Gandalf's horn call, right? The, the answering calls come, and, and this image of the, along the, f- the roads, folk were riding and running northward, all the people of Buckland chucking along the road, right, and galloping their little ponies, uh, chasing the black riders out of town. Absolutely delightful. Absolutely delightful. And yes, Matthew, I think to me, this is the number one significance of this passage. Matthew says, this seems a step up from Hobbit Gandalf. Absolutely. Um, if we want to know when the the transition has happened, right, this is it, right? He's still just the gray man when he comes in earlier, you know, just before the the, the previous passage. Um, you know, they, we see him in the dark, you know, a gray man come to the house in the dark right before the Black Riders show up. Um it's as if he still were the little old man that he was in The Hobbit and that he still was in Chapter 1 of The Fellowship of the Ring. His, he's already changing, right, in Chapter 2, uh, in the ancient history chapter. But here, it's on now, right? Gandalf in The Hobbit was never like this. Ever, ever, ever. Um, even at the Battle of Five Armies, he's not like this, Right? Uh, he's certainly, this is, think about what a change this is from, uh, Mr. Flaming Pinecones, right? Uh, we're trapped by wargs and all I can think of doing is, is throwing down flaming pinecones, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, he could have unleashed a sheaf of lightning, a a sheaf of lightning might have come in awful handy right about then, right? Um, absolutely. So yes, the Lord of the Rings Gandalf has definitely arrived. We can see the, the, the different, um. Uh, uh, the different conception here. Um, and yeah, Nancy loves the, the colors, that the silver hair and the darkness. Yeah, yeah. Um, and even, uh, you know, Nancy, I love the verb streamed, his beard streamed wide, right? Um, streamed, at first, his beard streaming, what at first seemed like an action description, like his long beard is streaming behind him as he runs, right, to sort of show his speed. Uh, but no, it's not that. It's streamed wide, right? So it's like his beard is flowing outwards. It's like it's like his own power is filling him, and, and I, it's, even his beard sort of shows how awesome he is, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, good. Several of you were wanting to talk about the, uh, um, the Lord. Yeah. Yana was saying he likes the, uh, the, the Lord reference was interesting considering, uh, uh, Tolkien's devout nature, right? It, it's in, uh, in the name of the Lord, um, does sound kind of like in the name of God, right? Um, uh, you'll remember, of course, in the published text, the ringwraiths say open in the, na- um, open in the name of Mordor. Right here, they say open to the servants of the Lord, um, and, which is kind of a, an interesting piece of ring rate psychology. Right, um, uh, if somebody inside uh, were uh, extremely detached, right? Well, okay. For instance, imagine Gaffer Gamgee were inside this house, right? When the ring knock on the door and say, "Open to the servants of the Lord." If they had said that at number three, Bagshot Row. Gaffer Gamgee have said, 
right? Gaffer Gamgee would have said, eh? Which lord, right? What lord are you talking about? Right? There isn't any lord around here, right? But yet the ringwraiths say uh, um, the lord, as if obviously everybody knows which, there's only one lord, right? And it's Sauron, right? Um, and so, we, again, I, I find this an interesting piece of, as I say, ringwraith psychology. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. <laughs> Karina is, my comments about his beard, Karina is uh, teasing me about my beard. Karina, it's totally true. I'm trying to grow a beard because I want my beard to, uh, my, my goal is to, if it's going to match my eyebrows, right? I'm, I'm going to carry on growing my eyebrows out until they stick out past the brim of my hat. And then maybe I can get my beard to where I can tuck it into my belt. If I can achieve both of those things, then I will have achieved the ultimate sort of Tolkienian facial hair combination. Uh, so, you know, we'll see. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway. Um, oh, and Brandon, I totally agree with you about the horn. Um, awake, awake, fear, fire, foe, awake. I, that's the way that that's so perfectly... I mean, I cannot read that without hearing the actual horn, right? It's just perfect. You know, bum 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 Right? It's just... It's perfect. The way that he captures the sound of the horn and the words there uh, with the alliteration and everything, too. It's... It's... It's, uh, it's fantastic. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, good. Okay. But... Even here, right? As uh, as everybody's. Oh, uh, sorry. I wanted to. Uh, somebody was it. Um, uh, yes, Brian. Brian Dimmick was saying it doesn't seem like rousing hobbits would be all that useful against the Nazgul, um, unless the riders are less fearsome than they ultimately turn out to be. Well, Brian, they 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 may in some sense be less fearful than they turn out to be. But notice. Um, in this passage, at least, it seems like it is, in fact, effective, right? I mean, they were running from Gandalf all by himself, right? Uh, you might ask, like, if they already ran away, to what extent was, the, like, the hordes of brandy bucks uh, running alongside the road, like, adding to their fear, right? Um, but nevertheless, Brian, the image that he gives us here is of the Black Riders being run out of town, right, by not just Gandalf alone, uh, Gandalf in the forefront, right? But with all the army of Brandy Bucks running up behind him, right? The horde, really, I guess you could say. Um, you know, all of uh, uh, all of Mary's friends and relations. Uh, uh, and I like it. You know, I mean, I, I that I I think that that is interesting. Does that diminish the Black Riders? No, I think it I think it amplifies uh, the Hobbits. Really, what good would it be? We don't exactly really know. Uh, what it would be, um, and yeah, Tony, it does change around in the in the eventual story. They do run away from just hobbits uh, in the later version, but we get we get their. Anyway, we'll save that. We'll 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 get to that later on. Um, but I do think it's an interesting change. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, good, and yet. All of this stuff running away. 
you still can't get rid of Odo. <laughs> right. Against the end of this inserted text, my father wrote in pencil, this will require altering if Odo is left behind. Odo is still a problem. See the penciled passage added at the end of the last chapter. And at the end of the text, after the words, a sheaf of lightning, he added in, behind clung a small figure with a flying cloak and the name Odo. Right. Of course, right? Odo still... We're threatening to leave Odo behind again, but he clings like a leech, right? Odo is not going to be got rid of that easily. Not even when Gandalf is galloping away. Um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's just awesome. Okay, at this point now, we arrive at... So this is it. So he's gotten this far. You know, we've, we've, we've gone... So we've gone through the first phase, Right, um, and having shown, we've seen Tolkien kind of discovering this story at every turn, and uh, uh, and you know the, the the revelation of the Black Riders, the revelation of Trotter, right in Bree, the revelation of uh, Weathertop, right, and the events of Weathertop, and the flight to the fort, um, and uh, and and all the you know the the way that the ring and the ring wraiths and everything developed along the way, um, we saw him get to. We saw Bingo get to Rivendell and 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 the 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 sort of lonely mountain direction in which the story seemed to be going at the as Rivendell was obviously the halfway point. Then he said, "No, let's stop and go back and and start rewriting things." And I was defending that choice, even though, of course, you know, as we've talked about this before, going back and starting again was kind of a vice of Tolkien's. It seemed totally justified in that case because the story had changed so completely. Um, and there's so much he had to go back and do at the beginning. Many elements of the story were just increasingly unsatisfying, such as Gandalf's movements and, uh, you know, push along, bingo, push along, right? Um, under, you know, while the ring rants are chasing them. So he goes back and we do the second phase, right? Well, now we've come to the end of the second phase with Gandalf galloping down the road after the ring wraiths and, uh, uh, and uh, the, the, the rest of them coming towards Bree, right? We stop. Uh, and he decides to go back and start over again. Um, this seems to me a very different uh, starting again than the last time, right? Again, that, 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 that over the course of the first draft, the story had changed so much, it really makes perfect sense when he gets to this major stopping point where he clearly does not see the road very clearly from there anyway to say, you know what, I gotta... I gotta get my head around all this stuff. And of course we see the huge, you know, addition of the new chapter two, the ancient history chapter and, and all this and, and Sam Gamgee, right? Another crucial and super important things. Um, why does he do it now? He's not even there yet. He's not even up to Rivendell yet. Um, it can't be a question that like inspiration has failed him. He knows where he's going, right? He's going, you know, he's going to Rivendell. He's going, he's going to Bree. He knows he's going to, uh, uh, to Weathertop, right? I mean, all that stuff isn't going to change. Um, so why does he stop here, right? Why does he do this? Um, of course, I don't, we don't know exactly why he did this. I can't really explain that. But the thing which is to me, the, 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 the one clear fact that we get about this is what Christopher emphasizes about the result. Like, when he went back between the first and second phase, he was going back in order to develop the story, right? Um, to work the eventual story back in from the beginning, right? Big undertaking. What he does in the third phase is not a big undertaking. These are not, I mean, there are some significant changes that he makes, but these are not 
radical changes at all. Um, the most radical thing that happens, according to Christopher, is him writing a fair copy of the manuscript, right? Because um, remember, that thing is a mess now. I mean, you know, remember, Tony, we were talking about, you know, no word processor, right? Um, this manuscript with the multiple layers and the alternate versions and everything else that's, that's in there, um, it's a mess and really, really hard to read. Um, in other words, one thing, one, interpret- one, one sort of reading of this, which obviously suggests itself, this manuscript is in no position to be submitted, right? I mean, what's a publisher going to make of this if he sends this to Alan and Unwin, right? So the idea of saying, okay, I, I'm on a roll here, right? I, I'm, I'm getting things worked out, um, but I need to go back and start again, seems not necessarily to be because he wants to start rewriting the story again, because indeed we see he changes very little, but rather I need to get this into a position where I can hand this in, right? If I want to submit this, I need to rewrite a fair copy. Um, so he's not rethinking things. And you can see this by how um, how briefly Christopher is able to go through the changes that he makes in chapters 1 through 7, right? Because he doesn't make that many changes. So we're going to go back over phase 2, but we're going to write one single neat version of this and, of course, make some significant interesting changes along the way. Um, but this seems to me, again, not so much a, let's go back and start from the beginning again, but rather, let's tidy things up. Let's make it neat. And on the way, let's clarify some things as we go through. Again, you might say, come on, Ronald, you're on a roll. Keep moving forward, right? Maybe if you kept moving forward, you could get past Rivendell, right? Maybe maybe that would work out. Um, if you didn't stop it, you know, maybe you're going to lose your momentum by going back and, and, and okay, yes, now you have a neater tech, but you can go back and do a fair copy anytime, right? Uh, you don't get on a roll writing and doing your revising thing all the time, right? So, but, but no, he decides he wants to go back and start it all over again. Um, so, fine, that's what we do. Now, the big thing that we get, of course, at the beginning is the foreword, right? What will eventually become the prologue. Um, And the first two paragraphs of this jumped out at me a lot. Um, We've seen, of course, the interesting relationship between this text and the book of which it was supposed to be the sequel, right? Between this text and The Hobbit. How in the beginning this was just supposed to be very directly a sequel to The Hobbit and how that's been changing over the course of the second uh, phase. Um, through the end of the first phase, and then certainly in the second phase. Um, tell me what you guys make of his characterization of that relationship in the opening paragraph of the new forward. This book is largely concerned with hobbits, and it is possible to find out from it what they are, or were, and whether they are worth hearing about or not. But finding out things as you trudge along a road, or plod through a story, is rather tiring, even when it is, as occasionally happens, interesting or exciting. Those who wish to have things clear from the beginning will find some useful information in the brief account of Mr. Bilbo Baggins' great adventure, which led to the even more difficult and dangerous adventures recorded in this book. This account was called The Hobbit, or There and Back Again, because it was chiefly concerned with the most famous of all the old legendary hobbits, Bilbo, and because he went to the Lonely Mountain and came back again to his own home. 
but one story may well be all that readers have time or taste for, so I will put down some items of useful information here. What do you notice about this as an opening to his new book? Yes, absolutely, Brian. Uh, He doesn't seem like he's assuming any longer that his readers will certainly have read The Hobbit. Absolutely. Absolutely. Remember how much fan service he was... He was doing Hobbit fan service in the first drafts, right? The way he kept going out of his way to drag in uh, parallels and allusions to the old story, right? He was... um, he was completely trying to make that connection with Hobbit fans, right, to root them in this new story so that they'd carry on, right? Now, not only is he doing, is he not doing fan service for readers of The Hobbit, he's explicitly saying that reading the first book is optional, right? Maybe you've read The Hobbit, maybe you haven't, right? Maybe you can't be bothered to go and read The Hobbit. Go and read The Hobbit, right? Um, He's... he sees himself as addressing a group of people, some of whom will have read The Hobbit, but many of whom won't. There's this whole new audience out there that he sees himself as addressing. Um, and again, that seems to me perhaps the most radical thing, more even than what it tells us about the story, is what it tells us about the audience that he thinks he's reaching. Right? Um, clearly, when he sat down and wrote uh, The Long Expected Party he was writing for people who'd read The Hobbit. Now, he's writing for... I don't even know whom, exactly. Um, But a much wider audience whom he believes The Hobbit readers are going to be... are going to be a subset of. Um, Now, Steve and I agree with you that the tone of this is very similar to the tone of the Hobbit narrator. It's not a total breach. Um, Steve and I agree. It's like Stephen is pointing to the line, um, you know, well, you know, uh, we'll see if you, if, uh, if, if, you know, you will see if you think he gained anything or not, right? That line in chapter one of the Hobbit. Um, it does sound like that. I agree. The tone is not at all discontinuous from the tone of the, the narrator of the Hobbit. Um, the interesting thing is that he thinks the audience is going to be discontinuous uh, with uh, with The Hobbit. Um, I, does this perhaps suggest? Um, there is an obvious answer to the question. If he doesn't think he's addressing The Hobbit audience, whom does he think he's addressing? Right? Who could he be addressing if the Hobbit audience is only a subset? And the answer is grown-ups, right? The Hobbit was a children's book. And he seems, uh, one reading of this passage is that he already sees himself as writing not for children but for grown-ups. Children can read it, right? Again, the Hobbit audience is a subset of the audience uh, that are going to be reading this book. Um, But who are going to be the rest of them? Not just children who haven't discovered this yet, right? Uh, but, but grown-ups, right? To whom the Hobbit was not really addressed. Um, 
Because, see, yeah, Brian, that's the thing. I don't think he is realizing it's going to be 15 years before he finishes and his readers won't actually remember The Hobbit. That's what's so fascinating about this, right? It's still only, what, like late 1938, early 1939? You know, Christopher, you know, can't be 100% sure about the dates, right? We're still within two years of the end. And honestly, to me, Brian, the fact that he's going back and doing the fair copy... Um, it doesn't undermine, but but cements the idea that he thought he was almost done. Remember, Christopher was talking about that when he gets to Rivendell in the first phase. He's writing that letter to Alan Unwin, saying like, "Oh, it's only only just a you know a few more chapters from here, right? Um, you know, I should be able to get it done within a few months," because he thinks he's at least halfway done with the story when he gets to Rivendell. Um, he doesn't foresee any, it's, you know, Rohan, Lothlorien, Gondor, none of those things. Right, even exist in his mind yet. He thinks he's almost there, um, at least halfway there, right? Um, and I, there's, I, and since he's not gone any past that or written any notes that seem to to point past that, we have no reason to think that he doesn't still believe that. And so again, I would see um, his going back and starting a fair copy here in the third phase as an argument to support the idea that he thinks he's almost done, right? Oh, well, I better tidy up and clean it up. This is like a final draft, right? Almost ready for submission. Right? I, I still need to do the end, right? We've got to get, I've, I've, I've still got to get him from Rivendell uh, to the Fiery Mountain, right? But, you know, uh, but at least here, the first half will be done and he could submit it, right? So certainly with the publishers riding his case, right, with them getting on him about not submitting it to him, he can he can send it. Be like, hey, look, here you go, half a book, right? Almost there. You can see, you know, you can tell me what you think of that, and we can, and I, and I, meanwhile, I'll be finishing it, right? And it's all good. Um, that seems to me what he's doing. So, so again, Brian, this is why I find this passage so striking, because 1939, he still has every reason to think his publishers are still clearly thinking. They're selling this to the... There's no doubt in your mind, right? There can't be any doubt that if he does send this to the publisher and, the, and he really, if he really did finish as he thought he was going to, the publishers are going to be like, if you loved The Hobbit, you will also love The Lord of the Rings, right? Clearly, clearly, that's um, what everybody is still thinking now, except Tolkien. Tolkien is already not thinking that way, and that is fascinating to me. He already sees this as reaching a wider audience, and I suspect... Uh, as I said, I suspect that that wider audience is adults. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Good. And of course, uh, as um, as you, as, as several of you have been pointing out, this shows his impulse for writing appendices and extra lore. And stuff like that, right? Um, I love the idea that, like, it might be onerous to re- to learn about hobbits while reading a story, right? So instead, I'm going to write you a fun appendix instead, because everybody enjoys learning about hobbits that way much more, right? Uh, um, those who wish to have things clear from the beginning will find some useful... I'm going to provide you with useful information uh, instead of just a story, right? Because everyone will love that. Um, and, of course, they will, in the end, love that, but... Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, really fun stuff. Now, Timothy uh, Fisher is saying it's interesting that he didn't have the Silmarillion in mind, you know, when he's thinking about sending it into his publisher. Well, interesting that you say that. Timothy, do you notice what happened? Uh, uh, right off in the next... Uh, okay, no, not not in the next paragraph. 
two more. We'll come back to that, Tim, but remember that about the Silmarillion. Um, Hobbits are a very ancient people, once upon a time more numerous, alas, than they are today. When, or so I hear it sadly rumored, they are vanishing rapidly, for they are fond of peace and quiet and good-tilled earth. A well-ordered and well-farmed countryside is their natural haunt. They are quite useless with machines more complicated than a bellows or a watermill, though they are fairly handy with tools. They were always rather shy of the big people, as they call us, and now they are positively scared of us. This is a fascinating uh, uh, passage because it's almost exactly the same as a passage that's still there uh, in the published prologue, but the context is quite different. Right? This is now no longer merely an anthropological statement about hobbits and hobbit culture, that they're fond of peace and quiet and good-tilled earth. Right? Um, a well-ordered and well-farmed countryside is their natural haunt. That's not a description of hobbit society. Right? It is in the published prologue. It is not here. You know, did you notice that? It's a description of human society, the kind of human society in which you are likely to find hobbits. A well-ordered and well-farmed by humans countryside is their natural haunt. Right, That's where you can find hobbits. They're fond of peace and quiet and good tilled earth. They're quite useless with machines, more complicated than a bellows or a watermill. This tells us, again, something about hobbits and hobbit culture. But it's not just about hobbits and hobbit culture in the abstract. It's about human culture. Though they are fairly handy, handy with tools, they were always rather shy of the big people, and now they are positively scared of us. Why? Because we use lots of machines more complicated than a bellows or a watermill, right? They were, they were, they were comfortable with bellowses and watermills, right? and good tilled earth and a well-farmed countryside. Um, that's where hobbits like it, right? That's where you could find lots of hobbits back in the old days, right? But now, ever since all these machines have been growing and now we have like this, and, and so the, the, the machine culture of the modern world is invading and destroying the green countryside and and we know no longer have a well-ordered and well-farmed countryside and therefore the natural haunt of hobbits is going away and therefore it is sadly rumored uh they're vanishing rapidly right um remember that's where that sentence started they are vanishing rapidly for they are fond of peace and quiet and good tilled earth right since there is no, now less good-tilled earth and peace and quiet, they're vanishing rapidly, right? That was the whole context of it. Um, so the, the, the advancement of technology, right, the growth of modern society is leading to the extinction of hobbits. Um, yeah. So, and that, I think, is... Uh, um, a very interesting change, right? Um, there are hints, there are those brief references still surviving in the published Fellowship of the Ring text of, like, being able to see, still see them nowadays, right? Though it's extremely rare, right, that they're ever seen nowadays. Um, the text seems to open up the possibility that some are still around and still exist. Um, but this suggests that they're actually contemporaneous with us, right? They're vanishing rapidly now, but there used to be a lot of them, right? When they were once upon a time more numerous, yeah, one, they were once upon a time more numerous, but that time was in the 19th century, right? Not hundreds or thousands of years ago. 
as is the uh, the 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 frame, the fictional frame of the Fellowship of the Ring, right? The published Fellowship of the Ring. So this is a really interesting kind of approach that he's taking here. But again, Brian, thinking about the comment that you made before, um, like the it's like the narrator of the Hobbit, right? Sounds like the narrator of the Hobbit. That is, it's um, he he is framing the story with his foreword, and in the foreword he is clearly a modern person speaking to other modern people about the modern situation, right? And setting his story, in a sense, within the modern context, not within an ancient context. But there's more. What exactly the relationship is would be difficult to say. There's the relationship between us and hobbits. To answer that question, one would have to rediscover a great deal of the now wholly lost history and legends of the earliest days. If only we had those legends available to us. If those could be published then, boy, it would make things easier, wouldn't it? But, ah, dang it, you know, it just seems like that's not going to happen. And that is not likely to happen, (laughs) for only the elves preserve any traditions about the earliest days, and their traditions are mostly about themselves. Not unnaturally, the elves were much the most important people of those times. But even their traditions are incomplete. Men only come into them occasionally, and hobbits are not mentioned. And the dang publishers won't publish those traditions anyway, so what difference does it make? Um, I just absolutely love... Yeah, Nancy, is this hilarious? The kind of dig that he gets in about the legends of the earliest days. Uh, yeah, Nelson says, and so Tolkien's passive aggression infiltrates his text. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, just uh, just just hilarious. Now again, notice he's saying even if we had the legends of the earliest days, it wouldn't help, right? Uh, we we wouldn't get much information about hobbits from there. Uh, but uh, but again, it's it, it's uh, that phrase, and that is not likely to happen. Just it can't help but jump out at you, right? I mean, he's still got his stack of manuscript of the Quintus Silmarillion, you know, still burning a hole in his desk there. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's just in the context of our history of Middle Earth series. This passage is just too delicious. Uh, uh, you know, and of course, it's much more funny in retrospect, knowing that you know eventually the Silmarillion is going to be published. Though, of course, Tolkien never lived to see it. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it, it would it wouldn't have been nearly so so, so funny in 1939. Certainly. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh a couple other points from that prologue. Uh notice the significance of the Shire. We get the farthings, of course, for the first time in the third phase. Um, But look at the Shire now. The Shire was their own name for the very pleasant little corner of the world in which the most numerous uh, 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 thoroughbred and representative kind of hobbits lived in Bilbo's time. It was the only part of the world, indeed, at that time, in which the two-legged inhabitants were all hobbits, and, and in which dwarves, big people, and even elves were merely strangers and occasional visitors. Um, notice that... Um, remember Bree? Remember the brief glimpse that we got in the first phase during the Bree section of the Shire being only a small subset of Hobbit culture, and in fact perhaps a rather peculiar, uh, even, well, I was about to say deviant, but that's not the right word. Um, anyway, sort of an odd subculture, right? You know, we had the wild hobbits, 
out in the east, right? We had the Bree hobbits, who were the normal ones, and then we had the Shire hobbits out in the west. Um, uh, anyway, it's uh, fascinating to me. I think we can still see glimpses of that, right? By the time we get to the published text, the Shire is the home of the hobbits, right? There may there are still some outside its borders, but they're the exceptions, right? There's some who still live in Bree, of course, and that, that's sort of a major subculture of hobbits outside the Shire. You might still stumble across some here or there, somewhere around Eriador or whatever, um, but really, the Shire is the home of the hobbits. Um, here, that's not true. It is the place where the most numerous thoroughbred and representative kind of hobbits lived, right? Um, so they're unmingled with others, mostly unmingled. Um, and they're the most representative, the most representative kind of hobbits, which of course implies that there are other less representative kinds of hobbits who live elsewhere, right? Um, the thing that makes the Shire unique is not that it's where hobbits live, is that it's the only place where only hobbits live, right? Everywhere else that hobbits live, they're mixed up with other two-legged folks, right? Uh, Nancy is surprised that he's forgetting about birds, who of course count as two-legged and and live in the Shire, but um, uh, yeah, true. But anyway, um, so it seems that perhaps Tolkien has not quite given up the idea that the Shire still is a smaller subset of hobbitry than uh, it was later to become in the published text. Um, so are we still going to see some development of that? It kind of makes me wonder, again, this is, as as the beginning of the third phase here, what it, what's it going to look like when, when we get to Bree? In the second phase, we already saw Bree was becoming a mixed town, right? And we saw some of the changes there. Um, oh, no, we, 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 sorry, we didn't get to Bree, right, in number two. But uh, in, this, in this, the second phase, no, it was in... The uh, the alter the notes and alterations um, uh, the queries and alterations section where he was thinking about changing Bree back to being mixed. But uh, uh, anyway, so we know that he thought of that at first, and that he's already thinking of moving that back. Um, but what is it going to look like? What is the status of Bree going to be? What about the the ranger hobbits? What's going on with those? Be really interesting to see how that pans out when we get there. Bilbo, it is told, remained very happy to the end of his days, and those were extraordinarily long. So here in the foreword, he's quoting the end of The Hobbit, right? And you'll remember that part of what was determining his choice, the reason he went with Bingo instead of Bilbo as the protagonist of his new story, was that uh, he had promised to his readers of The Hobbit that Bilbo remained very happy to the end of his days, and those were extraordinarily long. So, and we see he still remembers that promise that he made to his readers in The Hobbit, right? Um, and so he is going. He needs to come in and justify it, right? Let me explain. It's not. It was not untrue, what was said at the end of The Hobbit, right? Uh, they were. Don't worry. It's all true. How extraordinarily long you may now discover. And you may also learn that remaining happy did not mean continuing to live forever at Bag End. 
Bilbo returned home on June 22nd in his 52nd year, and nothing very notable occurred in the Shire for another 60 years, when Bilbo began to make preparations for the celebration of his 111th birthday, at which point the present tale of the ring begins. Right, this is the link. This is the explicit connection between the two tales. Notice also in that first sentence, he's not assuming you've read the book, right? He doesn't say, as he might have said back in the first phase, right? he doesn't say, you will recall that, you know, Bilbo says, you know, that, you know, uh, you know, you have already been told that Bilbo remained very happy to the end of his days, right? Um, he might have said it that way in the first phase, but he doesn't say that anymore. Bilbo, it is told, remained very happy. It's in quotation marks, right? So we know he's quoting, and many of his readers will recognize this as a quotation from The Hobbit. But it doesn't matter if they don't, right? Um... So this is the transition. Um, yeah, Arthur says, "But extraordinarily wrong for a sin- extraordinarily long for a sinister reason." It turns out, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, so he still ends with an explicit connection to the Hobbit, right? That showing the the, the direct link, um, so that we know exactly where we are in relationship to the Hobbit when we start the new story. Um, but again, what is fascinating to me is that. It, not only does it not rely upon it doesn't even it doesn't even assume that you have read the Hobbit and we can still see that here at the end of the foreword all right um, I'm now just going to do a kind of a survey of like random bits throughout the the, the this first chapter of the third phase um, when Christopher sort of mushes together everything from chapter one through chapter seven um, so I'm going to do a little little survey here of several different passages. Frodo no longer walked all over the Shire, nor was he often away from home. Rather, he did not go far afield, and after Bilbo left, his left, his walks gradually grew shorter and circled more and more around his own hole. So, in the third version, Frodo, beca- who is finally Frodo, Frodo becomes not... He does not gain in wanderlust. He decreases in wanderlust. And his walks grew shorter and circled more and more around the hole. When he thought of leaving the Shire and wondered what lay beyond its borders, half of him was now unwilling and began to be afraid of walks abroad, lest the mud on his feet should carry him off. Of course, fortunately, we have mastered the whole Hobbit half of him thing since we have... Notice Tolkien has forgotten that passage, right? Um... Gildor's not still going to say that, but but he's still thinking that, right? So we now have the, the hobbit half of Frodo that wants to stay at home. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's interesting to me that the emphasis is on his unwillingness. The emphasis is on his... In, in fact... In this third version, he's making Frodo to be more like Bilbo. He seems to be, I guess, really emphasizing the parallel between Frodo and Bing- and Bilbo, right? Um, that is making him sort of stay at home, unwilling, not wanting to go abroad, right? That Again, that hobbit half that needs to be overcome. The thin feeling mentioned in the previous version, as if he was being stretched out over a lot of days and weeks and months but was not fully there, is no longer referred to. And Gandalf does not do so later in the chapter. So he is not 
experiencing wanderlust, and he is not feeling the effects of the ring. So, one thing it seems that we see in this third version, Frodo is being impacted by the ring much more slowly. Right? There's doesn't seem to be any appreciable effect of the ring acting on him. I mean, unless we think his unwillingness, that is, his hobbit half, is being amplified by the ring. But I'm not sure that makes a lot of sense or that we have a whole lot of reason to think that. So that's one interesting thing. The giants are still there! In the passage concerning the rumors of trouble and the migrations in the wide world, the site of Sauron's ancient stronghold in the south, near the middle of the world in those days, becomes near the middle of the great land. But this was struck out. And the passage concerning giants... So first of all, let's comment on that first. Quiz time. Explain that for me. Why does he make that change? Again, we don't know for sure what was in his head, but we have some evidence here. And you guys have... Well, okay, I'll say, those of you who have been doing the history of Middle-earth with me should be able to explain this. I think we can I think we can completely nail the reason for that particular... Uh, 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 for that change from the midst of the world in those days to the middle of the great land. Why did he make that change? He's not changed the location of Mordor. Between the first phase and the second phase, he changes the location of Mordor, right? Mordor moves south and into the center of the world rather than on the southern edge of the Hobbit map, right? Why does he make this change? Yeah, sorry, I indulged in the band name joke there. What, uh... Do you remember? What are the Great Lands? What What is the Great Land, and where does that name come from? Yeah, Arthur, it's Middle-earth. Exactly. The Great Lands is what Middle-earth was called in the older Silmarillion material. From the from the Book of Lost Tales forward, it it's it, the, the the term Middle Earth to describe it, it was, is was a latecomer. Originally, they were called the Great Lands, right? In other words, this seems to me pretty clearly Tolkien into fully integrating as we saw in that forward, right? Now that the that now that the firewall is down and he's fully integrating this story with his mythology. He's using the vocabulary from the mythology, and just in, instead of just saying the vague and fairy tale like the midst of the world in those days, right? He uses a term drawn, a vocabulary drawn explicitly from his mythology near the middle of the great land. Um, now, this is struck out, Christopher tells us. But of course that makes sense, because at this time in his mythology, he was striking out the, the, the name the great land. He was already changing it to Middle Earth. Uh, at this time, we saw him strike out Great Lands uh, back in the Lost Road. Um, so, of course, it makes sense. It's not changing his concept about the integration. It's just changing what he's integrating it to, or making a change in the material to which he is integrating it, right? But, okay, so that's one point. Next point. The passage concerning giants, that is Sam's discussion with Ted Sandyman, trolls and giants were abroad of a new and more malevolent kind, no longer dull-witted, but full of cunning and wizardry, as right before Sam and Ted's passage. In the talk at the inn, the passage about the Grey Havens now appears. That's Sam and Ted. And the whole conversation moves almost to the form in the Fellowship of the Ring. But it is still Joe Button who saw the tree men beyond the North Moors, though he works now for Mr. Fosco Boffin with Of North Hope 
added later, and then changed to at Overhill. Fosco Boffin, Bilbo's first cousin once removed, appears in the Took genealogy. Okay, so the tree men are still there, right? It's not just trolls who are now more malevolent, no longer dull-witted, and full of cunning and wizardry. It's still giants as well, right? Okay, so the giants from The Hobbit, who were there and they were being trolls and giants both imported from The Hobbits, amplified the tree men who are clearly giants, right? Men the size of trees. All those are still there, right? So giants and other portents still present in the story. He's not yet changed that here in the third edition. Again, he's not changing much in the third version. We're just neatening it up, right? We're going to make a nice fancy text uh, to give to the publishers, presumably. Um, The change in Gandalf's answer to the question, now this is one of the, he's doing a lot of tidying, this is one of the clarifications, right? One One of the developments when Frodo asks that question, how long have you known? Right. Look at what Gandalf's answer is now. At first I knew very little, answered Gandalf slowly, as if searching back in memory. Already the days of the journey and the dragon and the battle of five armies began to seem dim and far off. To Gandalf, I believe that means. This is the narrator telling us about Gandalf struggling to remember, it seems. Perhaps even he was at last beginning to feel his age. And in any case, many dark and strange adventures had befallen him since. Gandalf is still a dude. Gandalf is still a man. It seems. There's no reason not to think that Gandalf is human in The Hobbit. He's a man. He's a wizard, yes. But that's like a profession, it seems. Not a race or anything. Right? Not like an incarnate spirit from Valinor or anything. Um, he's just a, a wizard. There are many white wizards, right? They have a council. That's what he's talking about at the end of The Hobbit, right? Um, and here it seems that Gandalf is still mortal, is still human. Um, he's last beginning to feel his age. So <clears throat> Gandalf Uncloaked is definitely, he is, he is a much bigger deal, right? He is a heavyweight like he is in the Fellowship of the Ring. But ontologically speaking, he is not yet an incarnate Maya, it would seem. Um, yeah, he's a very long-lived man, Tony, exactly. But a man, uh, it seems. Anyway, then after I came back from the South and the White Council, you know, where all those other white wizards met, I began to wonder what kind of magic ring he possessed but I said nothing to Bilbo. All seemed well with him, so I thought, and I was right in a way, but not quite right. I ought perhaps to have found out more, sooner than I did, and then I should have warned him earlier. But before he left, I told him what I could. By that time I had begun to suspect the truth, but I knew very little for certain. I am sure you did all you could, said Frodo. You must have been a good friend, or sorry, you have been a good friend, and a wise counselor to us. But it must have been a great blow to you when Bilbo disappeared." Gandalf didn't know? Or does Frodo just think Gandalf didn't know when Bilbo disappeared? And, uh, anyway, look at how Tolkien has amplified Gandalf's real uncertainty. Right? Gandalf is way less certain now. Uh, all seemed well, so I thought. I was right in a way, but not quite. Maybe I should have, sooner than I did, and then I should have done that. But before he left, I told him what I could, and I had begun to suspect, but I didn't really know. Right? Um, this is a really, uh, 
and no, Stephen, I, I was think, wondering that too. Stephen Cover was just asking, is Frodo patronizing Gandalf there, right? I am sure you did all you could. You've been a very good friend, Gandalf. Yeah, I, it's, it must have been a great blow to you. It is totally possible to perform those lines very patronizingly, but I, I, I don't think so. I think Frodo's being sincere there. I'm sure you did. He, but he's being reassuring, right? Instead of Frodo kind of getting at Gandalf, as he is in the published text, right? Um, no, but when did you know, right? How long have you known the answer? And he asks, come back and ask the question a second time. Um, instead of insisting, Frodo is now comforting him, right? It's all right. Don't worry about it, Gandalf. I'm sure you did all you could. Uh, it's a totally, they're in a totally different position um, than they will be later on. Um, remember how grim Gandalf was? Remember, that's the word that's used in the in the second uh, version text. Remember the um, remember the snarky comments that Gandalf makes about, like, and I doubt you're going to make it to Rivendell anyway, right? This is a Gandalf who's speaking in a very different register from that, certainly. He seems to be making Gandalf gentler. Even the way, the, the addition of the passage about how old he is, right, and how he's forgotten stuff and everything, right, uh, seems desi- designed to um, make us sympathize with Gandalf, even pity him to some extent. Poor Gandalf, right? You know, he's lived a long, hard life and, and lots, of, uh, uh, lots of strange adventures, dark and strange adventures have happened to him even since then, right? He's been, you know, Gandalf can be forgiven for not sorting things out any more quickly, right? It almost, like, right? That, that's the attitude we're supposed to be having. Um, which is, uh, which is interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, James suggests the friendship between Gandalf and the Bagginses seems to have grown since the second phase. Yeah, I think that's fair, James. Uh, James Oakley, I would, and there's several Jameses here. Um, I, I do think that, uh, it, it it does seem fair to say that it's one of the changes that he's one of the one of the things that he's clarifying here is the relationship between Gandalf and and uh, the Bagginses, as you say. Good. Okay. Notice the three rings. What use they made of the three rings of earth, sea, and sky, I do not know. Nor do I know what has now become of them. Some say that hidden elf kings still keep them in fast places of the Middle-earth, but I believe that they have long been carried far over, the, uh, far over the Great Sea. This is Gandalf talking, right? I have no idea what use the Three Rings were put to, and I don't know where they are. I've heard rumors. Some say that they're elf kings hidden in you know, fast places, um, meaning secure places. You know, because that's happened before. Gondolin... Nargothrond, Doriath, right? So there's something like that. There's like, so probably somewhere around Middle-earth there's like hidden Gondolins, right? Gondolin 2.0 somewhere. And that's where like the super powerful, so the, probably around Middle-earth they're like, there are elf kings who have forted up in these hidden places that we don't even know about, because again, that's a thing, right? It's been a thing since the Silmarillion days, so we're still in that world, and so this is how elf kings carry on, right, is is by fording up in these super-secret places, which the rumor of which will barely even come out to the outside world, so goodness knows how many elf kings of old there are in hidden places <clears throat> that most mortals can't get to or know where they are, right? And probably the rings are there. Or they've taken them across the sea. But the... Uh, 
the the exactly James Leaback Elf Kings like Celeborn exactly he's he's exactly in that pattern, um, <clears throat> but anyway yeah so um so uh, uh Gandalf has no idea where the rings are, um, Gandalf has no real connection with the elves right Gandalf seems to suggest if there are elf kings hidden around I don't I, maybe there are and I don't know about it nothing could be more likely right. We never know. We don't know what the Three Rings ever did. We don't know where they are. They might have left Middle-earth. So the elves are... There's this gap between Gandalf and the elves. So, I mean, you think about the published Fellowship of the Ring, and whenever Gandalf talks about the wise, right? Well, the elves are among the wise. So when he, he, Gandalf, classifies himself as among the wives... The wives. The wise. Uh, he classifies himself um, as among the wise. Uh, <laughs> happens when you combine wise and elves, I suppose. Um, you end up with like he, Gandalf doing an us and them thing, right? With Gandalf's us clearly includes the wizards and the elves, right? And the them, the 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 not wise, right? Everybody else, right? The men and the hobbits and everybody else. Um, Gandalf is not in the inner circle here with the elves. The elves are other. Uh, and this that's, to me, a fascinating construction here. Not only, of course, that obviously Gandalf does not have... If Gandalf has one of the elvish rings of power, right, he is, uh, um, he is totally snowing Frodo in this scene, right? What, rings? Nope, never heard of him. No idea. No, I don't know what they ever did, actually. No, they're probably gone. No, no, no clue. Uh, but that's not... Uh, um, uh, Gandalf is not going to lie that directly to Frodo. Um, but, uh, yeah, Tony is wondering if he even considered Thranduil as one of the ring bearers. Well, possibly, Tony, because you're right. We do have an elf king uh, in uh, a fast place, right? It's kind of fast, right? It's kind of fast. It's a little bit loose, but it's kind of fast, right? Uh, the uh, elven king's halls in Mirkwood. But at least it's a candidate, right? And who else do we have? Elrond and the Elven King. That's it. So far, that's it. Right? But remember, Tony, the floodgates of... the Silmarillion floodgates are open. Right? So we have all kinds of possibilities now for how we conceive of um, the Elves and their relationship to the rest of Middle-earth. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Brianna, Brianna says Frodo asks Gandalf what's in his pocket. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's the stumper. Um, Stephen Cover suggests that maybe he uh, he obtained it so long ago that he forgot because you know his age is catching up with him and he doesn't remember the Elven Rings anymore. Maybe I don't think he's I don't, I don't think his problems are that advanced. Okay, he says uh, Gandalf still speaking. What I have told you, Gollum was willing to tell, though not of course in the way I have reported it. Gollum is a liar, and you have to sift his words. Okay, but here's the interesting thing: what lies is Gollum telling now? Because remember, we're still in first edition Hobbit world, right? For instance, you may remember that he told Bilbo he had the ring as a birthday present. Very unlikely on the face of it. Incredible when one suspects what kind of ring it really was. Okay, so, right, so he maintained that the ring was his birthday present, and he stuck, that was his story, and he stuck to that because the murder of, of Diggle still haunts him, right? This is the story in the published Fellowship of the Ring. Gollum is telling the same lie in phase three, right? But notice the reason why he's telling the lie. It was said merely to make Bilbo willing to accept 
to accept it as a harmless kind of toy, one of Gollum's hobbit-like thoughts. He repeated this nonsense to me, but I laughed at him. Because remember, the story still is that Gollum was actively wanting to get rid of the ring. Remember, that's how Tolkien initially explains the riddle game. Remember, the term of the riddle game was, if you win, I will give you a present. Right? And Gandalf explains in ancient history that a big part of Gollum really wanted... He couldn't... He didn't have the strength to throw it away. But if he could corner himself into having to give it away in order to, to follow the rules of the riddle game, which, of course, Gollum would never, ever, ever break, then that would give him the ability to do it, right? But, of course, it's still... Notice that it still taints the apparently cheerful and comparatively friendly, though admittedly cannibalistic, Gollum, or at least carnivorous, Gollum uh, of the original Hobbit. It does taint him with deception, right? That he knew, Gollum knew, that the present he was going to give Bilbo was harmful, right? He's been haunted by this ring for centuries and can feel it eating away at him and he wants to get rid of it. And so he's playing Bilbo for a sucker in giving him this present, right? And that's a really interesting twist. Again, this is Tolkien's original version of how he can reconcile the published Hobbit with the new story of the ruling ring. Um... So he, Gollum, conceives this hobbit-like lie, right? It's a hobbit-like thought. Um, Bilbo will be more willing to accept it if I tell him it was originally my birthday present. It was my birthday present, and now I'm giving it to you, right? Um, Yeah, good. Stephen says uh, uh, this is as opposed to the published version, where Gollum's lie about it being a birthday present is primarily a lie to himself. Yes, exactly, exactly. He then told me the truer story with a lot of sniveling and snarling. He thought he was misunderstood and ill-treated. Gandalf still says, oddly, that Gollum had found out eventually, of course, that Bilbo had had in some way got his ring and what his name was and where he came from. Indeed, the point is now made more emphatically, and the, later, the news of later events went all over Wilderland, and Bilbo's name was spoken far and wide. Um, so, uh... Yeah, emphasizing that to make sure that Gollum gets his information, right? Because Bilbo didn't actually say that much. And, of course, according to the original... This is a problem in the original story, right? In the revised Hobbit, um, we end with, you know, thief, we hate it forever, right? He is convinced that Bilbo has the ring. So when he comes out, he's he knows that Bilbo has the ring. And so when he's captured by Sauron, he can say, Baggins has the ring. Ironically, he doesn't know it for a fact yet, right? But it is in fact true. But in the original version, he had no suspicion. Because Bilbo accepted being shown the way out instead of being given a present at all. So all Gollum knows in the first version of The Hobbit is that he promised a present and he doesn't have the present to give. Right? Um, So... Uh, Tolkien needs to explain how um, Gollum found out that Bilbo actually had it, right? In order for him to be able to reveal that to Sauron. Um, 
Yeah, Tony Mead points out it's also a much kinder and gentler Gandalf who can get Gollum to talk by laughing at him instead of putting the fear of fire on him. Yeah, 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 it doesn't seem to have to resort to threats of torture in this version. Um, look at what is revealed about Bilbo's thought process. You remember, one of the awkward moments in the second phase was the fact that Bilbo, knowing what it was, knowing about the ring and how dangerous it was, still chose to leave it to Frodo. And we were kind of joking about that, right? About Bilbo being all like, uh, here you go, Frodo, enjoy your inheritance, right? I'm out of here. I'm leaving this dangerous thing behind and I'll leave it to you. And that, you know, Tolkien tried to kind of moderate that, but that certainly seems to be, it's not surprising that when he goes through in the third phase, he tries to iron this out a little bit. Notice the, po- the emphasis points in this new version of that. I really do wish to destroy it, cried Frodo, but I wish more that the ring need never have come to me. Why was I chosen? Bilbo passed it on to you to save himself from destruction. Right, this was this was a, the last-ditch choice he had. And because he could find no one else. He did so reluctantly, but believing that when you knew more, you would accept the burden for a while out of love for him. Right, so you didn't know, but he knew that you would do it if you did know. Right, um, and he was really re- reluctant about it, and there was no other choice. He thought you were safe. Safe not to misuse it or to let it get into evil hands. Safe from its power for a time, and safe in the quiet shire of the hobbits from the knowledge of its maker. Right? So, Bilbo knew there was a risk, but it was really small. It wasn't going to harm you that badly. It was not going to fall into evil hands. It was not going to lead the enemy straight to you instantaneously. Right? So, what Bilbo did wasn't that bad. Um... Uh, and I promised him to help you. He relied on that. Indeed, for your sake and for his, I have taken many perilous journeys. Also, I may say that I did not discover the letters of fire or their meaning or know for certain that this was the ruling ring until he had already decided to go. I did not tell him, for then he would not have burdened you. So he didn't even know the final step. He knew it was kind of weird and dangerous and everything, but, and it, and it was connected with the necromancer, but he knew you were safe and I promised that I was looking out for you and so it was okay. Um, but he didn't know the final thing. He didn't know it was the ruling ring. I didn't tell him. So Gandalf takes responsibility. It's not all Bilbo's fault, right? It was my choice. I didn't tell him. Because if I had, he, under, he still wouldn't have done it, even though it, even, even to save himself from destruction. I let him go. He had had the ring for sixty years, and it was telling on him, Frodo. It would have worn him down in the end, and I dare not guess what might then have happened. Notice how Gandalf is then appealing to what he just said Bilbo was counting on. Believing that when you knew more, you would accept the burden for a while out of love for him. Gandalf is playing that card, right? You don't grudge what I did, do you, Frodo? You think I did the right thing, right? Saving Bilbo's life and all? Right? It would, think of what it would have done to him if I, hadn't, if I hadn't done it, if he hadn't done it. Right? It was telling on him, Frodo. You wouldn't want it, that to happen to him, would you? But now, alas, I know more. I have seen Gollum. I have journeyed even to the land of Mordor. I feel that the enemy is searching. You are in a far graver peril than ever Bilbo dreamed of. So do not blame him. Do not blame him. Um, yeah, yeah. Curita says he's assuming quite a lot there, but uh, I suppose he didn't have many options. None of them do. That's one of the things that he's emphasizing. Um, 
uh, Gandalf, I mean, is emphasizing, right? Bilbo had no options. He had no options. They're doing the best that they could. Um, yeah, John Caldwell says, this iteration of the story really evokes a sense of pity for Gandalf. I agree all the way through, right? Gandalf himself is not only less harsh, even sardonic, which he was in the second phase, um, but we feel bad for him, right? I mean, poor Gandalf. Guy's doing the best he can, right? What a tough place Gandalf has been been in this whole time, right? Think about how this then connects with Gandalf's uh, don't tempt me scene, right? Oh, man. And at the end of the day, he's got to resist the temptation to take the ring for himself. What a put-upon guy Gandalf is, right? All right. I'm uh, I'm officially keeping you late now, um, So uh, even though we started late, so I should stop. Um, Slide 22. Karita, I had 24 total, so I'm, I'm leaving two. I could rush through them fast, but I'll do it at the beginning of next time instead. Um, I don't want to keep you guys up later. It's been two hours. I'm going to let you go to sleep. Um, so I didn't, I yet again failed to write up my schedule. I keep meaning to and not getting around to it. I promise I will actually do that before the end. Um, but for next time, uh, we're definitely going to do the return to Bree. Um, uh, so I, I want to do, the, no, yeah, so I... I want to do it at the sign of the prancing pony. I, I want to get both of them. I want to get all the way to Rivendell next time. So I want to look at the third, fra- the, so the next two chapters, chapter 20 and 21 of the book, um, at the sign of the prancing pony and Weathertop to Rivendell in the third phase. And then we'll do the uncertainties and new projections the time after that. I hope to be able to do the story continued fairly efficiently uh, in two more classes. So I'm hoping four classes from here. Um, so the next two chapters, uncertainties and new projections, and then two more chapters for um, the last three chapters. Uh, the story continued. That's my goal. If we can do that, that'll get us through uh, before I leave town again. So that'll be good. All right. Thanks very much. Yet yeah, James Bingo's gone. We still got to confront Trotter though in the next uh, in the next chapter, so we'll so we'll see about that. All right, thanks everybody. Uh, thank you for being patient with me at the beginning of class today. Good night, and I will see you guys next week. Bye now. <laughs>